necessary because today's show involves quite a bit of cutting in and out, splicing, all that fun stuff. We don't need to get into the details. It'll bore you guys to tears anyway, but it's a pain in the ass. But um, now all that work is done, so we can have an awesome show. Um, They're coming after Bernie. They kicked it into overdrive. We knew it was coming, but I mean, the quality of the arguments they make are just abysmal, uh, to the point where it's legitimately embarrassing. Um, I just built seltzer on myself. Fail. Okay. So, I'm going to show you, is it an MSNBC clip or CNN clip? I don't remember which, uh, to start here. It's CNN. So, CNN... Um, is comparing Bernie to Trump because Bernie uh, calls out mainstream media's bullshit. I'm going to play that whole clip for you, and God, I have a lot to say. Um, We also have CNN going into hardcore Biden defense mode, and that is painful to watch. Chris Cuomo, of course we're going to talk about that, the whole Fredo meltdown. (laughs) And then we have a billionaire who literally describes himself as a grassroots outsider. Um, I have about 13, 14 amazing stories. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, And we're going to do that with CNN going after Bernie in the dumbest ways imaginable. So CNN, The Washington Post, MSNBC, and uh, various other mainstream media outlets all decided to have a week-long meltdown and attack Bernie Sanders for daring to criticize the media. So their new trick is to say, and it's not, I don't even know if it's new, they've probably done this before, but now they all got on the same page and they're all doing it at the same time. Um, And the argument is, well, obviously Bernie Sanders is like Donald Trump because Donald Trump talks about the media all the time and he calls them fake news. And Bernie's essentially doing the same thing So there's no difference whatsoever between Bernie Sanders' criticism and Donald Trump's criticism. So here they are. They're going to whine and play the victim. Let's watch, and then we'll discuss. The Washington Post is pushing back at at criticism from Senator Bernie Sanders. The 2020 Democratic hopeful blasted the Post coverage of his campaign, and he argues that it is biased because it is owned by Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. Listen to Sanders in New Hampshire yesterday. Anybody here know how much Amazon paid in taxes last year? I talk about that all of the time, and then I wonder why the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, doesn't write particularly good articles about me. I don't know why. And he fails to provide any evidence of that. Those past comments along those lines were echoed by his campaign and prompted this reply by Marty Barron, the executive editor for the Washington Post, quote, Senator Sanders is a member of a large club of politicians of every ideology who complain about their coverage, contrary to the conspiracy theory that the senator seems to favor. Jeff Bezos allows our newsroom to operate with full independence, as our reporters and editors can attest. Kirsten Powers is here, columnist for USA Today and Brittany Shepard, national politics reporter for Yahoo News. Good morning, guys. Um, I was a little surprised uh, 
Kirsten to hear Sanders say it himself, but it's not new to see his campaign really taking on the media without providing any evidence of bias. Uh, uh, his campaign manager, Bash Shakir, he was on Reliable Sources with Brian Stelter just a few weeks ago. In about you know a minute or so or two minutes or so, you're going to cut the commercial breaks and you're going to see some pharmaceutical ads. You're going to see a lot of ads that are that are basically paying your bills and the bills of of this uh, the entire media enterprise. And what that ends up doing is incentivizing you and others to make sure that you're asking the questions and driving the conversation in certain areas and not in certain areas. So, Jason Bryan followed up asked for evidence. He didn't provide any. But this seems like a really dangerous line, continued accusations against the media with no basis in fact or evidence provided. Yeah, I think it's perfectly in bounds to complain about your coverage, right? If you think, you know, this is, this is what every single campaign does. I mean, even Barack Obama's campaign complained about their coverage, right? Sure. So it's not, like, this is, people often think when they're running for president that they are the only person who doesn't like their coverage, and that's, that's just not true. Um, this moving into these kind of conspiracy theories about why is what's different. And, and I think in the climate that we're in right now with the President of the United States who has really gone after all media that hasn't fallen completely in line with him uh, and, and, and really is offering full sort of support, pretty much everybody else has been attacked, um, you know, as, as fake news and not trustworthy. And so I think what the Sanders campaign is doing is, is falling into, is using that same playbook, frankly. Yeah. And it would be problematic even without Donald Trump, but considering the culture that we're in where the media is under such constant attack. Um, I think that you should be very careful about the accusations you make, and you better be able to back them up. Oh, boy. Where do I begin? Just so you know, that clip continues for quite a while. And all they do is bash Bernie Sanders and pretend like his criticism is equal to that of Donald Trump's criticism of the media. So just up front, let's get this out of the way because this is the easiest part. Every time Donald Trump attacks the media and he screams fake news, anybody with a functioning brain understands he's only doing that to be self-serving. So, in other words, it doesn't, there is no concern for the truth value of what the media is saying. That doesn't enter his mind. All he sees is, is this for me or is this against me? If this is in favor of me, it's tremendous. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. It's the best story ever. If this is against me, wrong, wrong, fake news. So that's the consideration for him. It's purely narcissistic. It's purely selfish. Um, you know, the media plenty of times have, you know, printed stories that are anti-Donald Trump, which are factual, and he'll scream fake news. So, you know, bottom line, he's full of it. I mean, that's, that's the best way to describe it. So his criticism of the media is, I want you to be more authoritarian, and I want you to fall in line. That's what I want. I want you to reflect what I want and paint me and portray me in as positive a light as possible. That's the nature of his criticism of the media. They're not sycophantic enough to me. That's the nature of his criticism. Now, is anybody silly enough to believe that that's the same criticism that Bernie Sanders is making? Bernie Sanders has been making the same criticism of the media for decades now. And the bottom line is, he says, and he's correct in this, mainstream media does a terrible job doing their job. So, you know, hey, look at the buildup to the Iraq war. The media carried water 
for the war criminals in the Bush administration. They were lying us into a war. The media dutifully printed whatever they said. They were stenographers to power. They didn't question them. And um, as a result, they helped steer the country and drive public sentiment to be in favor of war. That's unacceptable. That's wrong. That's bad. Look at their priorities. They, you know, they're more likely to cover a story about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West on CNN than they are to do, say, a serious piece on homelessness and to talk about that. Um, you very rarely hear, here's a, here's a great example of exactly what Bernie's talking about. It, this, and this is an empirical question, too. Go look at all the coverage from all the mainstream media outlets over the course of this election cycle. Who gets tougher questions? The candidates in favor of Medicare for All or the candidates against Medicare for All? Who gets the adversarial questions? You all know the answer to that. Everybody who's in favor of Medicare for All is painted like, you know, a pie-in-the-sky crazy person who loves unicorns and fairy dust, and they're, they're treated like buffoons. Like, well, obviously we can't do that, and how would you pay for it? And a, a thousand nonsense arguments. Meanwhile, all the candidates who are against Medicare for All they don't get any tough questions on their health care plan. Take a look at John Delaney, for example. Take a look at, at Biden. Has anybody said, hey, man, hold on, you're saying we need to just expand on Obamacare. Well, under Obamacare, we have like 30 million people who are uninsured. We have up to 45,000 Americans that die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. Can you promise us that you'll, that you'll fix those two things and zero people will die because they don't have access to health care? I mean, that seems like a pretty important issue. Can you promise us that medical bankruptcies will no longer be a thing? Because right now they're one of, one of the top causes of bankruptcy. Can you promise us that? Hey, man, your plan doesn't go far enough. What are you doing? They never do it. And the crazy thing is, guys, it's not even 50-50. It's not even like, hey, the Medicare for all people get tough questions, and the non-Medicare for all people get tough questions. So at least you could say, oh, they're trying to be equally adversarial to both. It's not even that. It's that the Medicare for all people are the only people who get not only tough questions, but really stupid questions, which are gaslighting you in favor of the status quo. And the anti-Medicare for all people get softballs down the center of the plate all day long. So, again, this stuff is empirical. You could actually do a breakdown and you could, you could do the study and look over the past three months or whatever and look at who gets the adversarial questions in terms of health care. Anybody who's in favor of policies that the rest of the developed world has, they get treated like they're buffoons. Whereas if you're in favor of the status quo and you're in favor of just making minor tweaks around the edges, you get treated like a serious candidate. See, this is the nature of Bernie Sanders' criticism. It's that these people are frivolous and they have a pro-establishment bias. And he's correct in that. Now, by the way, they said, and they kept repeating it, no evidence, there is no, there's no evidence whatsoever that there's none, there's, there's no evidence of what they're saying here. In 2016, the Washington Post ran 16 negative stories about Bernie Sanders in 16 hours. You're telling me there's no evidence? How stupid do you think we are? I mean, honestly, this is embarrassing that, that this is the line of argument they're using against Bernie. And also, let's be clear here, the implication is, oh, it's, he's against the First Amendment, and he's against the press completely. No, there's a giant difference between saying, you know, hey, we should do some legal action against the press. We should do an authoritarian crackdown and saying, hey, you're doing a bad job doing what you do. 
huge difference between those two things. And just for the record, as they cry their crocodile tears for the First Amendment, how many of them have come out to defend Julian Assange, who they're going after because he exposed U.S. war crimes? Exactly. So it, it's just, it's such bullshit. Not every, like, just because Trump does bullshit criticisms against the media doesn't mean that all criticisms of the media are bullshit. And doesn't mean you get to play the victim every time people accurately attack you. I mean, what a joke this is. They really notice something, guys. They can't, they can't beat him on the substance of this conversation. So what do they do? They pretend like the entire conversation is out of bounds. Oh, how dare you, sir? You're like Trump with what you said. We can't even discuss this. Let's move on. Interesting. It's a, it's a cute little cop-out from having to actually discuss the substance of the conversation, which is, are you guys doing a good job or a bad job? Are you biased against left-wing candidates? Now, by the way, um, here's probably one of the most important points in this conversation. It's not like they're trying to make it seem like Bernie's saying it's some sort of smoke-filled backroom conspiracy. That's not what he's saying, and that's not what it is. And, in fact, you could read, say, uh, Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent, and it lays everything out for you very clearly. The way it works is, Yes, you have, it's like just a handful of giant corporations who run the media. So since that's the case, what you have is most of the people at the top are at least multimillionaires, probably billionaires, and they hire people down the line who will basically reflect their worldview. So that's not to say there's no dissent and no disagreement. Of course there is. But that's what we call in political science terminology – the Overton window. So the Overton window is basically the spectrum of thoughts that are thinkable, the spectrum of thoughts that they'll allow you to operate within. And as a general rule in mainstream media, you have, you know, standard centrist Democrats represent like as far left as you could go where they'll take you seriously. And, you know, to go, and it goes as far as say, Louis Gomer. <laughs> it goes as far as Marsha Blackburn, a Republican congresswoman, arguing with Bill Nye, the science guy, about climate change, and she's saying climate change is nonsense. So that's the spectrum of debate. The spectrum is, is way off to the right, where the left fringe of the spectrum is just a centrist Democrat. So they say, hey, you could go this far left, but you can't go any further. Now, again, this isn't like a nefarious smoke-filled back room. It's just standard hiring processes. You're only going to pick the people who, who generally don't rock the boat. That's the way it works. So it's true. All the people at all these outlets, they do have editorial independence. They do. They can say whatever they want. But they were hired and picked in the first place because the people knew they're not going to go too far in that direction that we would consider kooky. So you understand? That's the nature of, of how this works. And... Um, just realize they called it a conspiracy theory. They called Bernie's criticism of the media a conspiracy theory, and they said it's setting up a dangerous climate. So in other words, they're saying, you know, your, your criticism of the media is like leading to attacks on the media, like physical attacks, because they're saying dangerous climate. And conspiracy theory is a way to, again, delegitimize it without addressing the substance of it. And when they say, oh, there's no evidence, just understand that that's empirically incorrect. That's objectively untrue, 16 negative stories in 16 hours. And again, I submit to you, go look at the lack of substance in those stories. 
it's pretty clear they have an axe to grind. Again, not a smoke-filled back room or anything like that. But the reason why these people were hired is because they're milquetoast status quo defenders for the most part. There's a reason why Wolf Blitzer's face is on TV for hours a day. You know, there's a reason why you have people like Chris Cuomo, who we're going to get to later in the show. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's got a show. There's a reason why you have people who you look at and go, I don't know how much this person knows. It seems like they're kind of they're kind of empty-headed, like weird that they're the ones who get hired. No, it's not, because <laughs> that's what they want. They want people exactly like that. They don't want people like me. Now, I'm not saying I want to go to them, just to be clear. <laughs> I'm just saying that anybody who is does what I do, or not even does what I do, because I can be silly and funny and make fart noises and whatnot, but anybody who even has an ideology like I have, they could be, you know, totally buttoned down and a serious person and not joke around and be stoic. But if they have an ideology like I have, they're not getting on there. They've allowed, like, one. <laughs> in the past, Since Bernie Sanders became, you know, a movement leader, sparked all the way back in 2015, who, who are the real hardcore lefties who are regular contributors? Here's the answer. There's one, Nina Turner. That's it. That's it. Think about how many never-Trump Republicans they have on CNN? Answer, 17,462. There's like six never-Trump Republicans in the entire country, and they all work for CNN. <laughs> I'm not kidding about that. Polls show like 90% of the Republican Party loves Trump, but there's a giant oversampling of never-Trump Republicans um, on CNN. Why? Because, again, they're trying to portray that as the reality in the country, that, oh, Republicans are still wonderful, and they're great, and, and a lot of them don't like Trump, so... Yeah, this is, these are the kinds of people that we want to represent that party. So that's what we're going to put on. And on the Democratic side, well, yeah, everybody agrees that it's Joe Biden who's the most serious candidate and Kamala Harris. And so, so all the, they're all like this. There's really no – I mean, nobody really agrees with Bernie Sanders. we got one person on here who comes on every now and then, Nina Turner. She's the only one. But everybody else, I mean, let's be serious. This is the spectrum of thoughts that are thinkable. Kamala Harris on the left, you know – the anti-Trump Republicans, like Mitt Romney, that's as far right as you go, and boom, we're good. So as they pretend like they're just keeping it real with you, they're actually trying to steer the narrative and define the parameters of the debate. Again, not a smoke-filled backroom conspiracy. It's not. But it reflects in their hiring processes what their ideology is. And if you don't think they have an ideology, you're thinking, oh, they're just calling balls and strikes, and they're giving Bernie a fair shot. Oh, please, you haven't been paying attention, and you have the blinders on on purpose, because not only is his criticism correct, it is obviously correct. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this notion of electability. Now, this is something that many people on the left have weighed in on, and they've said the whole notion is nonsense, and we shouldn't even be talking about it, and it really is just, you know, an establishment trick where they take their preferred candidate and they say, hey, this one's the most electable, even though it's not necessarily reflecting in the numbers, but this one's the most electable, so we have to go with this person because they'll, they'll beat Trump. Now, 
they're status quo defenders, and they enjoy business as usual, and they won't change much. But that's okay, because all we care about, thing number one, is we got to defeat Trump, right? So they're both right and they're wrong, people on the left, when they make this point. I mean, I get what they're saying. However, what I would argue is, instead of saying, hey, the whole notion of electability is bullshit, my argument would be, okay, if you want to have the conversation of, of electability, let's have the conversation of electability. The, you know, the straightforward definition of electability is, who is most electable? Who is most likely to be Trump? Now, we could actually beat them on those grounds. So in other words, when they say, oh, electability is so important, and that's why we have to go for a centrist, we should respond, okay, if you think electability is important, let's be clear, no, it's the lefties who are the most electable. So in other words, instead of arguing, this is some advice that I'm giving to people on the left, instead of arguing the whole concept of electability is nonsense, we can say, okay, fine, we'll take your point. Let's have the conversation about electability. But we win on those grounds. The lefties are more electable. So now, this has implications. So what does this mean for the Bernie team? Well, what I would tell the Bernie team is you cannot, you should be making the electability argument because I want it to be a reflexive reaction from people. If you ask people, hey, who's most likely to beat uh, Trump? I want everybody to be like, well, obviously Bernie. So you should make the electability argument, but I would caution and say, don't use polls to make the argument. Why? Very simply, that's an argument that Biden's team can make as of right now as well. So in every poll, Bernie Sanders is beating uh, Donald Trump head to head, 100%. However, so is Biden. Now, I, I think you guys have a similar opinion to me, and I've pointed this out many times. I think that largely a smokescreen in terms of Biden. I think that the more he talks, the more those numbers go down. So in that respect, I actually think it's a lot like Hillary Clinton, where she had a poll, a, a lead in the polls most of the time in the election, and she lost. So my fear is that Biden is way too similar to Hillary, and he could lose that lead. Okay, But just understand, as of right now, that's my speculation. That's an opinion. So this doesn't hold up in an argument, because it's not a strong enough point. So what the Bernie team has to do is make the case that he's the most electable without bringing up the polls. How do you do that? Well, this is the really, really, really important part, okay? What the Bernie team needs to argue is he performs the best in the exact states that Democrats need in order to win. He outflanks Trump on the exact issues that matter most in those states. So, the whole reason Donald Trump won, and anybody who follows uh, politics closely understands this, the whole reason he won the election is the Rust Belt. Rust Belt, Rust Belt, Rust Belt. If he didn't win the Rust Belt so overwhelmingly, then he wouldn't have won the election. So, that's the whole game right there. The whole ball game is in the Rust Belt. And, you know, it was like 70,000 votes that put him over the edge. So, you know, it, it's a very understandable point to make to say, well, you want the Democrat who is safest in the Rust Belt, who's going to be the most electable in the Rust Belt. And that's Bernie by far and away. Why? Because Bernie was out there leading the fight against NAFTA. Bernie was out there leading the fight against the TPP. As Joe Biden was pushing the TPP and supporting NAFTA, you know, Bernie is the strongest pro-union Democrat. 
Bernie is the strongest anti-corruption Democrat. Bernie is the actual anti-establishment outsider. So when you look at somebody like Joe Biden, the argument for mainstream media is, well, Joe Biden, he has working class appeal. That's what it's, 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 it's the working class appeal. By the way, what they mean is white working class, and that's it. In the case of Bernie, he has working class appeal from people of all races and backgrounds, okay? So he's the actual working class favorite. But more importantly, the reasoning matters. The reasoning matters. And in the case of Bernie, on all of those key policy issues that really turned the race over to Trump, he outflanks Trump and beats him at his own game. Now, just just to be clear, this is not me saying, hey, there are no TFGs who supported Trump. In, in other words, I'm not saying it only comes down to economic anxiety. Uh, obviously, there are many reasons different people voted for Trump. It's not like Richard Spencer voted for Donald Trump and supported Donald Trump because he was, you know, he was being uh, against uh, free trade and in favor of working people, in favor of protections for them. That's not why Richard Spencer supported him. Richard Spencer supported him because he made the comments that, you know, uh, Mexico's not sending their best. They're criminals. They're rapists. I assume some are good people. We need a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming into this country. Like, that's the reason why a guy like Richard Spencer would support him. So I'm not trying to say that, like, oh, all of this support for Trump is purely economic-related. But what I am saying is, and this is proven, the support that got him over the edge in the places that mattered the most in the election, in the Rust Belt, that is a big part of it there. That is a big part of it there. Polls also show those people support populist Democrats over Republicans. But it's, they, obviously they had the choice of a fake populist Republican and a non-populist Democrat in the last election, and they went with the Republicans. So, but again, don't, I wouldn't bring up the polls when I'm the Bernie team and I'm making this argument. But what I would say nonstop until the cows come home is Bernie Sanders is the strongest Rust Belt Democrat possible. If you couldn't create a, a Democrat in a lab that's more, that's better for the Rust Belt than Bernie Sanders. Again, TPP, NAFTA, permanent normal trade relations with China, unions, anti-corruption, anti-establishment, outsider, history of fighting for these people on the issues they care most about. He's a lock in those areas, a lock, whereas Biden is almost uniquely weak, just as weak as Hillary, because what's Trump going to do? Same old tap dance. He supported NAFTA. He was trying to push the TPP that would have destroyed jobs. And what's Biden's response going to be? He's going to probably call the debate moderator uh, his kid's name and um, trip up and, and call Donald Trump Richard Nixon or something because his brain is melting and dripping out of his ears. So I just don't – in other words, the concept of electability, while some argue it's total bullshit, no, we could have a conversation about who's most electable and why, but the left is going to win that conversation 10 out of 10 times because it's true. On all of those most important issues that really put Trump over the edge in the Rust Belt, those are the issues where Bernie most severely routes Donald Trump. What's he going to say? I'm more populist. I'm more of an outsider than Bernie. I'm better for working people. And also, Bernie's the only one who can bring up the, the facts because he knows them. He knows that 93,000 jobs are outsourced under Trump. He knows the, the numbers on income and wealth inequality. He knows how tough working people have it. He knows that half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. He knows 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Biden doesn't even know those facts. 
Biden's more likely to make the argument, um, the economy is actually great, but thank Obama for that or something. So make the electability argument become correct. You don't have to bring up the polls. Bring up the region of the country that's most important in the election and how Bernie beats Trump on all of the important issues to those people in that region. All right, now, CNN went into Biden defense mode. You hate to see it. Oh, wait, is it CNN or MSNBC? It's MSNBC. So MSNBC, everybody knows that they are the establishment democratic network. Now, there's a difference between that and a lefty network, they're certainly not a lefty network. They're not repping an ideology. They are the defense squad for the corporate Democrats, for the centrist Democrats, in much the same way that Fox News is the, the propaganda arm and the defense squad for the Republican Party. So this is the role that they play, you know, and they're hostile to Trump for sure, but they're equally hostile to lefties like Bernie. Now, look at how they bend over backwards and do mental gymnastics until the cows come home to try to defend Biden and his roughly four gaffes per day that are incredibly stupid and weird and awkward. Question hanging over Democrats desperate to deprive Donald Trump of a second term. Does Joe Biden have what it takes to go the distance? His campaign, which has largely been covered, as one step forward and two gap-induced step back, has Democrats privately and publicly starting to wring their hands? New York Times reports, quote, some of his advisors said in interviews that they were privately nervous that his recent gap spree would become cemented into the larger narrative of the presidential race. If the accumulation of verbal missteps continues, some Democrats say it will eventually sow doubts about what many primary voters believe is Biden's biggest strength, that he's best positioned to beat Trump. But the Times also reports Biden's advisors worry he's suffering from an unfair double standard, something his primary opponent, Tim Ryan, brought up when asked about the vice president's recent mistakes. Look, this is hard. You're traveling. You're exhausted. There's always a microphone in your face. So we're all going to make mistakes. But I think we all have to be very, very careful because when Trump says something like, it's too bad for the people in Toledo, Ohio, and the shooting was in Dayton, and I'm trying to make the case that I think Trump's mental faculties are diminished, clearly diminished from where he was a few years ago. And so we've got to stay focused on him. He doesn't make any sense. He, you know, is sometimes you can't even understand what he's talking about. For anyone keeping score at home, just this hour, that's Anthony Scaramucci and Tim Ryan worried about the president's mental faculties. But it's an interesting and important point. Trump hasn't been shy about highlighting Biden's recent flaws, a textbook case of the pot calling the kettle black. Remember, this is Donald Trump we're talking about, who once implied Frederick Douglass was still alive, despite being famously dead for more than 100 years, who twice in one speech praised the health care system of Nambia, an imaginary land, I believe, from a Disney film, despite the fact that that country doesn't exist. He once shared a video message calling Hurricane Florence one of the wettest storms we've seen from the standpoint of water. 
water standpoint found it what? And insisted Finland prevents wildfires by raking their forests. All this pales in comparison, though, to Trump's lie counts, 12,000 of them, according to the Washington Post, just in the first part of the first term of his presidency. This is what Biden's supporters are pointing out, that Biden may mix up his words and off-the-cuff remarks, but Trump, the most prolific liar in American history, is the one doing real harm. The cable's back. Um, I don't get the Biden hand-wringing. Biden, and, and this conversation about Biden, all this reporting there, this really is exclusively fodder for the media and the activists. Voters, I never hear this among Democratic voters. I don't even know who the byline was in that story. I haven't looked at it. But whoever it was, come on. I'm sure I mean, a reporter, this, but you don't have to make a lot of calls. This is, this is, you it's call silly. Obama people, you call, I mean, there are a lot of people who say this about Biden. What do we know about Joe Biden? Everyone loves we know, Biden. We know that he has misspoken throughout his entire career. He said stuff he didn't mean. He's mixed stuff up. He said stuff that was awkward. But we know Joe Biden. America kind of knows Describes Joe Biden. me every day from four right. to five. And I really think this, I mean, I think the biggest mistake the Biden campaign can make is trying to hold Joe Biden back to a script. Let Biden be Biden. I agree. And, you know, is it possible he says something that blows things up? I don't think it's possible in this day and age. And I think the people in Iowa, I think, I saw somewhere over something that somebody said, we know what he meant. We know he didn't Voters mean do. that white kids are smarter than black kids or brown kids. He didn't mean that. We know him. We know that's not what he meant. So here's the thing about this that's just totally unbearable. They're mirroring the thing that they hate about Trump supporters. So in other words, Donald Trump can say, you know, a million insane things that make no sense where he's obviously obviously tripping over his words and it's embarrassingly wrong or whatever, and they defend him no matter what. And they say, oh, my God, the media is taking him out of context, and this is bullshit. He didn't even mess up that bad. So what? Maybe he misspoke. Sometimes they just say, no, he didn't even misspeak, and this is nonsense. Other times they'll admit, yeah, he misspoke, but whatever. But they're doing the exact same thing with Joe Biden. So, wait, here's the thing. She went through a list, Nicole Wallace said, all the gaffes of Donald Trump and all the bad things he said, and they matter. But then they go on to say, and by all the gaffes that uh, Joe Biden has, they don't matter at all and look the other way. Come on, come on. That's their, the argument is, come on, come on. People know what, they, what he meant, meant. I mean, come on. People know what he means. But wait, pick a standard and stick with it. Do these, you know, these gaffes and does the obvious cognitive decline matter or does it not matter, okay? Because if you take the position it doesn't matter, at least be consistent and say, okay, it doesn't matter for Trump and it doesn't matter for Biden. Or say, hey, the cognitive decline matters. I'm upset about it with Trump, but I'm also upset about it with Biden. But see, what they do is just in-your-face rank hypocrisy where they flip their standard right in front of your eyes. I care about the gas. They're bad when Trump does it, but when Biden does it, come on, you know what I mean. You know what I mean? What are you talking about? Dude, he said a lot of things. Listen, at first, I'm the type of person who's at first inclined to go, yeah, whatever, they just misspoke. Let's talk about the policies instead because the policies are the most important thing. That's the team I'm on. The only time I really change that is when the evidence is so overwhelming that you go, okay, something's up here. And that's what we're at with Biden. I would say that's kind of where we're at with Trump. I mean, Trump, obviously I disagree with him almost 100% on policy, so, it, you know, that's really important in the conversation, too. But when it comes to Biden, for the first, like, three or four, I was like, whatever, it's fine. But then 
like they kept getting worse and worse. Like just so everybody knows, just to give a few examples, he um he repeatedly referred to Theresa May as Margaret Thatcher. So that's like his brain just like defaulting back to the 1980s and thinking, I don't know, female leader of the UK, it's got to be Thatcher, right? But he's done it multiple times. So that's like a, a big, that's like a real serious question about cognitive decline. Um, but that's just one example. The list goes on and on. They attacked Trump for saying the wrong names of where the shootings happened, but Biden did the exact same thing. And in fact, Biden actually botched it a little worse than Trump because Trump botched one of the places. I think Trump said Dayton, the Dayton shooting happened in, Ohio, in uh, Toledo, Ohio. Um, and then you had, I know Biden said Houston. He got one wrong and then he got another wrong. And, and then the other thing he said is um, that the, one of the shootings happened while he was vice president and he remembers the kids coming up to him afterwards but he wasn't president when that shoot or he wasn't vice president when that shooting happened so but again i'm giving you little bits and pieces here i just want everybody to understand this is not the total picture there have been i mean it's just endless it's like every single day he says something where people are like duh like what because they're not even like little mess ups they're like giant and they're really weird and you go back and you watch the debate my mom, who's relatively apolitical, she watched a little bit of the Democratic debate that Biden was in, and she calls me the next day, and she goes, and this is not somebody with an axe to grind against Biden. She voted for Obama and Biden. She goes to me, he could barely get his sentences out. Like, it was hard, it was hard to watch. It was, something's off. How many times in the debates does he, is he mid-sentence, and then he cuts himself off, and he's like, anyway, my time's up. What? Uh, I mean... I think that there's a lot of evidence for genuine cognitive decline, okay? But if you want to say, hey, I still don't care about this stuff. Let's only stick to policy. I'm sympathetic to that argument. But what I would say is whichever side of that you pick, hey, the cognitive decline matters or the cognitive decline doesn't matter, you have to use that standard objectively. And not only do they not do that on MSNBC, they are so brazen and over the top in their hypocrisy when they don't do that, to the point where they will literally give a list of, here's all the dumb gas Trump has, <laughs> idiot. And then in the next sentence, they're like, but Biden's, Biden's don't matter. And what I say, come on, come on. That's your argument? Your argument is, come on? People know what he meant. That's the same shit that Trump supporters say when Trump says some dumb shit. Oh, come on, come on, people know what he meant. Come on. You guys are embarrassing, man. This is, now, final point. I'm going to leave you with this thought, because this one is overwhelming. Imagine if Bernie Sanders had, did one-tenth the number of gas that Biden is doing as we speak. What would they say? I guarantee you, across the board in mainstream media, they would be telling him, you have to drop out. This is inexcusable. Bernie Sanders is incredibly mentally sharp. Okay, he's also very physically active to the point where much younger people are like, I can't keep up with him on the campaign trail. But if Bernie Sanders said some of the things that Biden is saying, they would all be screaming at him to get out. But Biden does it. They don't even talk about it like it's a problem. Their argument is, come on, it's fine, it's fine. It's fine. The person who we want to become president has a melting brain, but that, that doesn't matter because Trump is bad. And he does gas. He does gas. Our gas don't matter. His matter. 
you're such hacks, man. Can you believe that these people get paid to give their political opinions? One of the people on that panel was Claire McCaskill. Claire McCaskill is a Democrat who was just in the Senate, and she lost her race. I'm not kidding you when I say they ask her advice on how Democrats can get elected all the time. They go to a Democrat that lost for electoral advice on what the Democrats should do moving forward. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's like, I have no words for how stupid that is. You want to talk about how to win elections? I don't know. Maybe talk to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was outspent 10 to 1 against a Democrat who was in leadership, and she won. Maybe talk to me, co-founding Justice Democrats, getting so many elected with next to no money coming out of nowhere. Maybe talk to Cenk Uger. I mean, you could talk to any of a number of people who've gotten shit right, whether it's our revolution or Justice Democrats or PCCC, whoever it may be. But they go to a corporate Democrat, a pretty conservative Democrat, who lost a race as if she's an expert in how to get elected. That's who you want to talk to to figure out how to lose. But this is where we are. This is how terrible they are on MSNBC. But at least, again, just to be clear, now you see it. They're just, it, it, it's naked in front of you. It's not even, they're not masking it. They're not playing hide the ball. They're just being hacks. They're Biden's best jabs. Come on. That's your argument? You sound like Jeb Bush. Come on. Come on. Come on. Give me a break. Please clap. Please clap. That's just like a sad, groveling, silly person. And you're the same thing, except you're doing it. Please, please vote for Biden. Please. Come on, yeah, it's not that. Oh, gas, whatever, gas. It don't matter, gas don't matter, gas don't matter. Did you see Trump's gas? Bad, bad gas. Who watches this? Who watches, it's, it's, I can't, if you watch that and you like it, I, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that you exist, that there's somebody that deeply illogical out there who views politics in this way. Okay. All right, let's go to Chris Cuomo. (laughs) Guys, the graphic over my shoulder. Holy shit, you would love this so much. So Chris Cuomo melted down when he was heckled. I think this is um, at an airport. I heard that somewhere. That might not be true. It doesn't look like an airport to me. It looks like, I mean, I know they're not at a circus, but the tent above them kind of looks like it's at a circus. But anyway, I digress from that. Um, This blew up on Twitter, man. Chris Cuomo was getting absolutely roasted for what he was doing here. But funny enough, there are actually many people who came out and defended him. So you had, like, Sean Hannity defended him, Tommy Lauren defended him, TYT defended him. A lot of people were like, hey, man, whatever, it's cool. He, see, he stood up to somebody who was talking shit. Let me just show you. I'm sure most of you have seen it by now, but I want to run the clip anyway. Let me show you the back and forth. This is what happened when he was called Fredo, and then we're going to come back and discuss. I thought, I thought that's who you were. Oh, 
Corleone. Fredo Corleone in The Godfather was, yeah, like the weak brother, kind of nebbish weak brother who wants to be a leader, but he just doesn't have the characteristics. And, you know, he kind of sells the family out. And he, uh, it's true that that character in the movie is like really sad and weak. And that's why it's getting under Chris Cuomo's skin is that, listen, And on this, I genuinely have sympathy for Chris Cuomo, that his dad was Governor Mario Cuomo. And by the way, not a bad governor, just for the record. He was actually significantly more progressive than um, Andrew Cuomo, who's his brother. But that's the point. His dad was the governor. His brother is the governor. And he, (laughs) he's a CNN anchor. Oh, come on, man. I don't know how dude got the job, but... The default assumption from everybody, and it's not unreasonable, is to think, well, somebody probably made a fucking phone call. Somebody made a phone call. Is it, what, you think it's like purely meritocracy? That, that the brother of the guy who was the governor and is the governor? Like, just, he just happened to work his way up through the ranks. And, and, and by the way, this is why some Hollywood actors like to change their name if they have, like, famous parents. is because they, they want to say, no, 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 this was all me. This wasn't. But for Chris Cuomo, listen, I would say to him, dog, the reason why you're so upset is because you feel like there's a grain of truth in it. Because daddy was the governor, your brother's the governor, you're a CNN host, everybody's default assumption is somebody picked up the phone and made a phone call and said, "Mm, can you give this guy a job? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying he's any worse than any other CNN host, for the record. But um, I think that the the reason why that hit him is because he does feel a little bit like, like... that stings because there might be a grain of truth in it. Now, um, 
Chris Cuomo recently has actually been very good to a lot of lefties. He's had a, he keeps having on Jank Uger and Anna Kasparian, and um, that's more than almost any other host on any of the mainstream networks does. Okay, so at least he's allowing the conversation to be shifted a little further left, to shift that Overton window a little further left, to have some genuine, like, hardcore pro-Bernie voices on to, to have that conversation. So you've got to give him credit for that. But what I would say to him in response to what he did here is, bro, you're a grown-ass man. You're a grown man, dude. You know, I, I, uh, I don't know how old he is, but... Dude, you know you can't do this shit anymore. You're not in high school. You're not in college. Like, you can't. And by the way, when you're known to one degree or another, I'm not defending the person who was screaming Fredo at him, but, like, it's a little bit par for the course. You know what I mean? Like, if you feel physically threatened by somebody, it's all systems go. You're allowed to defend yourself. The only time I think violence is okay is in cases of self-defense. But if somebody's just doing, like, whatever, some mild heckling where they called you Fredo, this, this, this is a little bit of an overreaction. Um, now, also, he said, it's an insult to your people. Are you Italian? Like, this is like the N-word to us. Um, listen, I'm Italian. <laughs> That's not true at all. <laughs> Never in my life, in my, like, my mother's side is the Italian side of the family. Never in my life once has any of them ever mentioned, like, oh, Fredo, you know, it's a really bad word to Italians. It's like the N-word. Not even close to true, dude. In fact, there are other words that are worse to call Italians than Fredo. Like, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Fredo is like, like it's nothing. No, the point is he's trying to compare him to that weak-ass brother in The Godfather. So he is trying to insult him. Don't get me wrong. He is trying to insult him. But, like, even calling an Italian person Guido is worse than calling them Fredo. Or actually the worst one than that is Ginzo. Calling them a Ginzo is worse than, than Fredo. And I could say this again because I'm Italian, so I'm, I get the pass. <laughs> um, but don't compare the N-word, dude. Don't do it. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that because that's just not true. It's not as bad. It's not as bad. There's not – I mean, maybe back in the day – I don't even know if it was true back in the day, but, like, in my experience, there's no word that is as harsh against Italians as the N-word is to black people given the history and all that stuff. So, um, and the, the final point, <laughs> the final point I got to make is right when this happened, I tweeted, I, I cannot wait until Trump responds. <laughs> and right on cue, <laughs> he tweets about it and he says something like, you know, oh, Chris Cuomo, he wouldn't be able to pass the red flag law. He shouldn't have a gun. He's crazy. <laughs> Because now the conversation is about red flag laws where the idea is, you know, if somebody's being really erratic and they're mentally unhinged, that there can be like a quick process to just take whatever guns they have to make sure they don't commit some sort of a shooting or whatever. It's this new law that's like a, some, like a mild version of gun reform that's being debated right now. So Trump tied that into, oh, my God, Chris Cuomo, the red flag law should apply to him. If he has guns, we should take it. This is, he's crazy. And then he goes on. His team starts selling Fredo unhinged T-shirts on their website. <laughs> Come on, man! You know I was having this conversation. Um, I did the live Jimmy Dore show the other night, which was a lot of fun, and you should check out the clips when they drop. 
on uh, on Jimmy's channel, but I had this conversation with Katie Halper, and she said something that so many people have said to me secretly. People will go be like, psst, psst. I feel really bad because Trump is actually like really funny. <laughs> I've heard so many people say that, and they're all 100% right. I feel bad too. I feel bad too. The dude's a war criminal. The dude is destroying the economy. The dude, I mean, you know, you go through the list of all the terrible things he did. The negative column for his policies is endless. The positive is nearly non-existent. But yeah, the dude is hilarious. Without even trying, he's one of the funniest people on the planet. The way he, he's like a king troll, but he's also really stupid. And it's just, it's, it, I'm at the point now where if you tweet something and that thing has an exclamation point, I can't help but read it in Trump's voice. Or you, it's all caps. I'm like, that's, you're Trump. Like, that's who you are. Like, the dude has dominated the national discourse so much, and he's so funny that now he, like, owns the exclamation point. <laughs> oh, my God. But anyway, um, CNN released a statement in defense of Chris Cuomo. Just for the record, I, do I think there should, he should be fired? Of course not. No, I, I don't care. Um, do I think he probably should have reeled it in and not acted like a high schooler? Yes, I do. Um, but the CNN statement was kind of funny because they, like, over-defended him. Like, if I was CNN, I would have said, we saw the incident, we don't really care, we're standing by our host. But they were like, Chris Cuomo and his family have been longtime fighters against anti-Italian ethnic slurs. Which is like, oh, come on, bro. <laughs> come on, dog. You're overreaching, cuz. You're overreaching. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, I don't care about this. It's just kind of funny. So I decided we'd all have a good time and laugh together. Okay. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I got Tom Steyer who uh, went on MSNBC and tested out his shitty message, <laughs> and it didn't go well. And then I got um, Ben Shapiro. We will be dunking on his uh, tiny ass. <laughs> A clip went viral of him saying dumb stuff, so we're going to jump in on the fun. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with all of that and more. Stay right there.
you're going to enjoy this Dunkathon on one Tom Steyer, 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 Steyer. <laughs> uh, there's some people who you'll just never get the pronunciation of their name correct. And I think it's time we just accept that and we just move on. <laughs> <laughs> and of course I put it in the wrong place. Here we go. All right, ready? So uh, there is a presidential candidate by the name of Tom Steyer. 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 Whatever. Um, he went on MSNBC and he tested out his new message since he jumped into the race. Um, look at how disingenuous this is. And then when we come back, if you don't understand why it's disingenuous, I'll explain it. Joining our conversation now, Democratic presidential candidate Tom Steyer. Tom, good morning. I uh, appreciate you coming on with us, especially early out there on the West Coast. I understand you and your campaign have some news to share. Yes, we do. I, I, one of the requirements to be on the debate stage is to have 130,000 individual donations, and people have been asking us if we're going to make it, and the answer is we've made it. As of this morning, in fact, we have 130,000 individual donations. So you've met the donor threshold. You still have a poll threshold to make. Most people believe you will get there and that you will be on the stage for those debates. Uh, so what will be your message? This will be an introduction for a lot of the country, although you've spent a lot of money. You've been on the air a lot in places like Iowa, but most of the country hasn't met you, doesn't know what you stand for. In that crowded field, what will be your message in the debate? I have a simple message, Joe, and that's this. We have a broken government. There's been a hostile corporate takeover of our government, and I'm here to return to government of, by, and for the people. I've been an outsider for 10 years, organizing coalitions of ordinary American citizens to take on unchecked corporate power. And for 10 years, we've been beating those corporations and winning. And that is my message, that that is job one, to take back the government from the, corporate, the corporations who bought it. And it's a similar message, as you know, Tom, to someone like Senator Elizabeth Warren or Senator Bernie Sanders, who've been railing against corporations and corporate money in politics. How will you be different from them? Well, I think that the big difference is this, that I'm an outsider that I have been doing it from the outside successfully for 10 years. If you look at the other people who are running for this nomination, they're overwhelmingly insiders. The top four people are all senators or former senators who have more than 70 years combined in the Congress and the Senate of the United States. So I think there's a big question for all Democratic voters. If job one is to take back the government from corporations, do you think it's going to come from someone who's a grassroots activist and who's been doing it from the outside successfully, or do you think an insider, somebody who's been working inside the Beltway for years, is the person who's actually going to change D.C.? Dog, don't... No, don't... Chill. Chill. Stop. I don't, I, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you have to stop. All right, listen... The thing is, he's so close, yet so far. <laughs> so let me explain. Yes, when you're running for president in today's day and age, 
you have to come across as I'm an anti-corruption populist outsider who's crusading for the people. You have to do that. So his instinct in that respect is correct. However, where he's so insanely wrong and it's comically stupid is the overreach where he's like, me, bro? Me? I'm an outsider and a grassroots activist. Don't, no, no, stop. You, oh, you can't say that, dude? Tom Steyer, 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 uh, is a billionaire who made his money in finance, and he's pretending that not only is he an outsider, but also, you heard it, Bernie Sanders. I mean, these guys are insiders. No. Oh, no, you were so close, bro. He was so close with the, like, yeah, we need to shake up Washington and get rid of the corporate control. And, yeah, all true, all true. I'm a grassroots activist and an outsider. No, no, no. Oh, oh. We all know you're a billionaire who made your money in finance. And then, and Bernie Sanders is an insider. Oh, you, you done fucked. You know you done fucked up, right? You know you done fucked up. You know you done fucked up, right? <laughs> I mean... All you had to do was not, like, piss off all of Bernie Sanders' supporters, and you just did it. <laughs> like, what, you think they're going to vote for you, and they think you're a bigger outsider? But let's be clear, because I want to define what it means to be an outsider. Because what he's doing is he's redefining it here in a way that's self-serving. The way he's defining it is Washington versus everybody else. That's not it. Because guess what? Take, for example, Wall Street in New York. In New York. They're not outsiders. They're technically outside of Washington. They are, but they're not outsiders. Nobody ever would call them outsiders. So obviously the definition is not just in Washington and out of Washington. The definition of an outsider to me is not connected to big money and representative of the American people. That's an outsider because the elites are not representing the American people, okay, and they're corrupt and they're bought by big money. So by that definition – which is, I think, the most straightforward and honest definition, obviously Bernie Sanders is an outsider. Yeah, he's been in Washington for a long time, but he's been fighting for the people every step of the way, and he's been against the corruption and the big money every step of the way. So he's been in Washington, but he's the biggest outsider in the country. So for you to see, that's the thing. He, you just smeared the, like, the strongest lefty populist candidate in the race, and he, Honestly, you just tanked your chances in the first, it, it, in an instant. You you tanked your chances up front because you can't you can't do that. Like you're throwing haymakers at somebody who's who's like 30 leagues above you, and um, it's a bad look. And that's not saying you can't criticize Bernie, but if you do, you got to come correct, man. And this is not even close to correct. So um, now the other thing that I wanted to mention about Tom Steyer there is. Um, he was the guy, and this occurred to me the other night. I was almost mad at myself for not getting it earlier. But he's the guy who did the whole impeach Trump campaign, where he was like the number one guy in the country pushing this nonstop, blowing millions of dollars on ads for it. Again, billionaire, so this is what he does with it. He could spend that money to totally eliminate homelessness. Nope. Well, he actually doesn't have enough to totally eliminate homelessness. Let me be fair to him. But he could have used the millions of dollars he was using to do impeach Trump ads to, you know, 
give homeless people a roof over their head, but he didn't. He was wasting it on the ads. But the whole point was, I'm going to lead the impeach Trump campaign, which is going to go nowhere. Sign my petition. Give me your email when you sign my petition. And then the whole point was, it's a ruse just to build a giant email list so that when he runs for president, he can mass spam everybody with emails to try to basically buy his way onto the debate stage. And that's what he did. So we created this giant email list under false pretenses. People thought they're signing up to, for a movement to impeach Trump. It was really to give this billionaire asshole your, your information so that later on he could use you to try to get elected president. Um, and that's what happened. So, and he also it was selling anti-Trump bumper stickers, but it was counting towards individual donations to him, which is really kind of sleazy. So he's reached the, because a lot of people are like, how the fuck did he reach the donor threshold to get into the next debate? Because he did. And the answer is, again, he bought his way in. And he did all these sleazy tricks in order to get in. Selling bumper stickers, that counts as an individual donation. So he's got over 130,000 individual donors to get into the next debate. How the hell did he get over 2% in the polls? Well, that one, you're going to have to dive into the mechanics of that. Because there is no way this dude is going to get over 2% in three polls. But somehow the DNC went, oh, look at that. I found a few polls where this guy made it in. You're telling me there's not foul play? And by the way, later on we'll get to a story how they are literally excluding some very, you know, highly regarded polls because they don't like the results of those polls. So Tulsi Gabbard and Julian Castro are being excluded, at least as of right now, because, oh, my God, they don't have above 2% in three polls or however many they're supposed to have it in. Even though Tulsi has over 2% in more than three polls, but those polls, the DNC is going, ah, they don't count for reasons X, Y, and Z, even though they're highly respected and legitimate polling outlets. They don't, they don't count. They don't matter. But the ones that count matter, they have Tom Steyer at 2%. The dude joined the race like four and a half minutes ago, and you're telling me that this douchebag is polling over Tulsi Gabbard? Who killed it in two debate sessions? My ass cheek, son. My ass cheek. I'm supposed to believe this? Come on, man. I follow politics for a living. I know this shit. There's no way that's the case. So what they're doing is, and they did this to Gravel. They did it to Gravel. And listen, I, everybody knows I'm a critic of Gravel. I'm on the record. I'm not hiding that from anybody. I am. I'm critical of his campaign. However, I defended him on that because he got screwed. They screwed him out of the debate stage. They were like, Let's tweak the rules to get in in order to screw Gravel and bring on some other goofball who nobody gives a shit about, like uh, Sandra Bullock, Governor Sandra Bullock. (sighs) What a joke, man. Listen, when you're a billionaire who made your money in finance, you're not allowed to describe yourself as an outsider, and you're not allowed to describe yourself as a grassroots activist. And next time you, you you run for president, at least gather your email list not under false pretenses, you know? Like, now it's so clear to me, this dude never had a different, like, understanding of the impeachment situation than me. He probably saw crystal clear, just like I saw it, that, oh, this is going to be a dead end, and if anything, it'll help Trump. He didn't care, because he just wanted the emails, because he just wanted to run for president. So that's what's annoying me about him, is that he, was, he hasn't been honest along the way. He hasn't been upfront. Now, some people have responded and said, but Kyle, that's just, that's politics. But I would submit to you, this is probably the most sleazy that I've seen in terms of how he's building his support. You know, like other candidates agree or disagree with them. They do have like 
a thing. Like, for example, Andrew Yang. It's not false pretenses with him. He actually believes in UBI, and he's been pushing it. Now, I have disagreements with him. He's more libertarian than I am. But, hey, free country, you can represent whatever ideology you want to represent. That's all fine and dandy. But there were, there were no false pretenses. Dude's like, hey, I'm running for president. I believe most in this UBI proposal. I'm going to build, you know, an organization and, and support through pushing this idea. He's genuine on that front. Nobody doesn't think that he believes in universal basic income. Of course he does. Tom Thayer, Thayer, Thayer. I mean, I, my guess is he sees the impeachment situation very similar to how I see it, where, you know, he, his analysis is it'll probably help Trump and it ain't going anywhere. It's going to die rather quickly, and the Republicans are going to dance on the grave of it and, and get a round of positive press. But he didn't care because he just wanted to grow his profile so he could run for president and then weaselly and then weasel his way onto the, the debate stage. So just reel it in a little bit, big guy. Reel it in a little bit. Be a little more honest with people and stop pretending that the most populist outsider candidate is an insider because that insults our intelligence. And that's nonsense. And you're not boosting yourself when you do that. You're making yourself look silly. All right, little Ben Shapiro. So Ben Shapiro uh, spoke about the economy on his show. I don't know the full context to this. This clip blew up on Twitter, and I couldn't find, like, the longer version of it. But um, I think he's responding to some sort of question from the audience here. And you're going to see there's a reason why this clip went viral. Take a look. argument it's just so silly like the whole idea is we're not trying to craft a system that properly caters to the needs of the people it's that the people have to arbitrarily fit themselves into this system and if it happens to fuck over like most of them tough cookies well what a horrendously dumb ideology that i want no part of whatsoever (laughs) they treat the market like it's this like it's a god Ooh, what has the market dictated to us today, good sir? I would not. It, they almost act like it, it's some sort of superstitious thing that they can't, in no way, shape, or form can you tweak it or change it. You're simply a slave to the whims of the market. Yes, the market. This is like goofy, what I call market fundamentalism. It's like this hardcore anarcho-capitalist idea that, like, you know, 
nothing can be changed, nothing can be tweaked, nothing can be fixed. There can be no rules and regulations. Because the holiness of the glorious market overrides everything. Yes. Yes. It's just so dumb. That's so stupid. People have been tweaking markets forever. I mean, look at every other developed country. When you have, you know, free health care at the point of service, universal health care, single-payer system. When you have free college. When you have child labor laws. This is, that's all rules and regulations that tweaks the marketplace. And you can do that. Now, of course, you have to weigh the pros and cons in various situations, but sometimes it's really clear what you should do, and sometimes it's not so clear. There's gray area issues, but there's also some very black and white issues that now we look at and we go, oh yeah, that one was common sense. Like, for example, child labor laws. Like, for example, the weekend. We all agree, like, hey, that's probably a good idea. You know, maybe we shouldn't work seven days a week until we fucking die, get ter- keel over and is keel the word I'm looking for? Keel over? Keel over? Peel over? Whatever, you know what I'm saying. Uh, you know, it, peel over and die, or whatever the word is, and die <laughs> at age 50. So it, it's embarrassing. Now, let's go through some of the stuff, you know, in relation to the point he's making. He's saying, hey, man, only 5% of people work two jobs. That's a weird thing to, like, downplay, as if that's not a lot. Five out of every hundred people working two jobs or more, that's a pretty big number to me. Um, But furthermore, what he's not telling you is 13% of Americans are either unemployed or what's called underemployed, which means they're, like, super overqualified and they're making less than they should be making or they're not working as many hours as they'd like to be working. So 13% of Americans are unemployed or underemployed. 5% of Americans work two jobs or more. Half of American workers make $30,000 a year or less, and 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, which, in those points, they directly address the core of his argument, which is, hey, man, this isn't, like, this is an individual problem. This is not a systemic problem. And I submit to you, it is the exact opposite. <laughs> so if, if, you have, if you have to work two jobs to put food on the table and survive. No, that's not a you problem. What that means is the market is not valuing your labor at a rate that's moral or decent or ethical or reasonable. So, you know, we should probably change the rules to make it so that the market does value your work at that level. Other developed countries, like in the Scandinavian countries, uh, they have unionization for everybody. So the rates, you know, there is no minimum wage there, but the reason there's no minimum wage is because everybody makes significantly above the minimum wage because there's collective bargaining for everybody. So it, the idea that, like, oh, we can't fix this problem and you just have to accept that it's an individual problem and not a systemic problem, well, that's proven that that's not true because other places have addressed the problem of low pay and having to work multiple jobs by having collective bargaining for everybody. Another way to fix that problem is to make the minimum wage a living wage so that when you work a full-time job, you do make enough money to survive. Now, this is where he chimes in and goes, but hold on, you can't do that because then there's negative consequences like the unemployment rate ticks up. That's why you can't raise the minimum wage to a living wage, to which I respond, that's incorrect because they've done studies, and in various states where they've increased the minimum wage, there hasn't been an uptick in unemployment. So he would just be factually wrong on that point. What he has is a theory. (laughs) What we have is the empirical data on our side. Um, And one of the things that always 
stuck out to me when somebody makes a claim is, is it universal? So when, when we think about morality, for example, you think, if I do it, it's bad. If they do it, it's bad. Is there a universality approach here where we can say, it's bad, it's wrong across the board? What would happen in a world where everybody did X? So what he's saying is, when it comes to the economy, if you have to work two or more jobs, that's not a systemic problem, that's a you problem. You probably shouldn't have taken that job which pays you so little. That's what he's saying. But take that to its logical conclusion. Let's say everybody took Ben Shapiro's advice here. What would happen? Then there would be nobody for all of those jobs that pay not great. And the economy would not be able to function. Because probably the overwhelming majority of those jobs are absolutely necessary in order for the economy to continue to function. So if everybody took the advice Ben Shapiro is laying out here, the economy would collapse. <laughs> so maybe that value, that labor, is incredibly important. And we can decide as a society to treat it as such. I mean, it's the way that these guys talk about casually, you know, serious flaws in the economy really shows you they're working backwards from their conclusion, which is the status quo is fine, business as usual is wonderful, and if you have a problem, it's, it's on you 100%. And that's a very, that's like a very childish way of looking at the situation. It, it's literally like saying better things aren't possible. Just suck it up. <laughs> I mean, just imagine this mindset applied at any other time in human history. Imagine that mindset applied when we had feudalism or when we had, you know, monarchies everywhere, authoritarian leaders everywhere. Like, what do you mean? That's just how it is. There's no problem with the system. It's a you problem. But for some reason, he thinks somehow that that's, like, reasonable today, even though that thought process would have been, like, abysmally stupid 50 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever, however far back you want to go. So um, I'm here to tell you, no, it's not a you problem. It's not a you problem at all. There are millions, millions of working poor people in this country. And that does not reflect poorly on them. They are working full-time jobs and still not making enough money to survive. That's an indictment on the system. And there was a great tweet uh, yesterday in response to this where I believe it was Internet Hippo. And he said something like, because you know the conservative pundits say this all the time. Well, if you guys would just stop being lazy and get a job, then you wouldn't... Oh, you got a job? Well, if you just got a, 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 a diff, another job or a job that paid more, then... <laughs> so just keep moving those goalposts. Moving those goalposts to keep shitting on the workers and acting like it's a problem with them. When no, it's a problem with the system. And it can be fixed. Okay, next, Steve King.
So Representative Steve King is well known as one of the dumbest congresspeople. Um, he's right up there with Louis Gohmert. One of my favorite comments from Steve King was years ago when he said uh, that immigrants have cantaloupe calves because I think his argument was because they're running drugs into the country. <laughs> so in his mind, you have people crossing the, the border that have like literal drugs like on backpacks. And they're running a lot, and he's got they got cantaloupe calves, man. They're working out their legs a lot. <laughs> the type of stuff these guys think about, dude, it's unbelievable. And then you know, Louis Gomert as well. Like I said, is one of the dumbest. It's either Steve King or Louis Gomert who's the dumbest. But my favorite uh, Louis Gomert comment, comment, and there were many. Uh, he said that Obama wants to bring back the Ottoman Empire. To this day, nobody understands what he's saying. Nobody gets that. Like, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> the Ottoman Empire? The Ottoman Empire. You, are you saying that, like, not only are you a birther, but you think he was born in Turkey? Is that the argument you're making? And you think that, therefore, he wants to bring back the Ottoman Empire because he's secretly Turkish? I, or is it, oh, he's Muslim. But if you, if you think he's Muslim, why did you settle on Turkey? You could have gone with any of, of, a, of a number of places. You went with Turkey. Why? Why? He wants to bring back the Ottoman Empire. I don't understand. You, what, you think he was like rolling over to Erdogan or something when he was president? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. It, like, the things they say are so dumb. Uh, Louis Gomer, another famous moment, he said, uh, you know, don't cast aspersions on my asparagus. Everybody was like, what? Are you trolling us? <laughs> so anyway, we finally have a comment that tops the previous dumb record. Take a look at this. This is from Steve King. Laws restricting abortion access should not have exceptions for rape and incest, says Representative Steve King from Iowa, because throughout history, many people have been born as a result of rape and incest, including perhaps himself. Quote, what if we went back through all the family trees and just pulled those people out that were products of rape and incest? Would there be any population in the world left if we did that? King said at the West Side Conservative Club meeting in Urbandale, Iowa on Wednesday, according to the Des Moines Register. Considering all the wars and all the rape and pillage that's taken place, I know I can't certify that I'm not part of the product of that. <laughs> he said, would any of us be left if, if um, what if we went back through all the family trees and just pulled those people out that were products of rape and incest? Would there be any population in the world left if we did that? Answer, yes. <laughs> There'd be a lot of us left, of course. <laughs> the fact that he seems to think that, like, what, the majority of instances are, include rape and incest that led to people giving birth? No, people enjoy sex, you know, we're kind of wired to enjoy the feeling of it, and so they're going to do it, and this idea of consent among humans dates back quite a while. It dates back quite a while. You know, the idea of courting a mate, you know, there's, and in the animal kingdom it exists too, not saying there aren't some, you know, species that, that do rape and whatnot, there are, I think dolphins are notorious for that, but... You know, in the animal kingdom, there's plenty of, like, courting a mate, trying to figure out how to get them to like you and to be willing to do that. 
what a what a bizarre thing to say, man. What a bizarre thing to say. So in other words, what he's arguing is, hey, in, even in cases of rape and incest, I don't think people should be able to get an abortion. Wow. Wow. So if there's a woman out there who's raped by some monster, and she's like, well, obviously, on top of the insane trauma and PTSD, I'm obviously going to get an abortion. He says, no, you can't do it. In the case of incest, if, if the relative is very close to you, then there's a very high likelihood that you have very serious health problems with the baby. He says, nope, got to have it. And the other thing about this guy is, just like many of the people on the far right, there's no nuance. So in other words, they say, I don't care if you're taking the morning after pill or if it's a, an abortion at eight and a half months. Those are fundamentally the same thing. They're murder in both instances, and you can't do it. All right, man, if this is the ideology that some people, that, that this appeals to some people, by all means. You know, go right ahead. But it is comically stupid. It is embarrassing. It's also vicious, man. It really is like, and I hesitate to make these arguments for the most part, but this really is a clear instance of like, he doesn't value the humanity of women. It's just like, your property, and I will force you to be an incubator, even in the worst case scenarios of you being raped. I... It's hard to wrap your mind around, but at the same time, it's not because we know the record of guys like Steve King and the stuff that he said. And um, this is actually right in line with all of his other insanely far-right beliefs. It's just he finds a way to voice it in a way that's next-level stupid, which is why it makes news. All right, let's make fun of the mooch, the Scaramucci mooch. So Anthony Scaramucci and Donald Trump have officially broken up. Um, They're now sniping at each other. So naturally, the mooch has instantly become a media darling because he's voicing the most tepid criticism of Trump imaginable. I want to show you some of that criticism here, and then we're going to talk about it. interview, you compared the president to Chernobyl, something of a nuclear meltdown, and then you went on to say a couple more weeks like this, a country over party is going to require the Republicans to replace the top of the ticket in 2020. A couple more weeks like this, you say. A couple more weeks like what? Well, the last time I was in this chair with you, John, we were talking about the racially charged rhetoric that led to a whole Twitter nonsense from the president, and obviously he then left to go to the two shooting areas. And so now 
He comes back in the two shooting areas. That was like a total catastrophe because the only thing he was doing in those areas was talking about himself and praising himself and, and crowd sizes. And so it just one day after the next, it gets worse and worse and worse. And in the meantime, as you know, in a chair like this or inside your studio or elsewhere, you know, I got fired two years ago and have tried to stay very loyal to him and very loyal to the agenda because I think the policies are very, very good for the American people. But the rhetoric is so charged and so divisive that we have to all just take a step back now and say, what, what are we doing, actually? So uh, one thing that I find reprehensible, and the president continues to do this, and I think what will en end up happening is sound and reasonably minded men and women in the Republican Party will say, wait a minute, we can't do this. He is giving people a license to hate, uh, to provide a source of anger, to go after each other. Uh, and he does it on his Twitter account. So let's just stop for a second and think about this. Uh, we, we ignore it, but he goes after people personally. Going after me personally, no problem. I'm a big boy. I can take it. Donnie Deutsch can take it. But he goes after ind individuals uh, as the president of the United States on his Twitter account, okay, which incites hate, which incites death threats. I mean, at some point, I think the people in my party – We'll have to look at all this stuff and, and stop being anesthetized to it and say, hey, what are we doing? The policies are great, many of them. The trade war thing is likely going to end up in, a, in an unexpected outcome. We can talk about that if you want. But lastly, how are we all tolerating this? So, so to me, I'm just saying it, it, you know, last week, arguably one of the worst weeks in his presidency, and, again, I'm not talking about – things that happen to him politically from a legislation point of view or things like that, but just from the way he's acting as a human being. So to me, a couple more weeks like this, I really do believe there will be a groundswell in the party where people say, hey, the policies are great, but you're setting us up uh, the way Jimmy Carter set up the Democratic Party where they went into the wilderness for 40 years. So, so those are my opinions. I'm very proud to state them. And, uh, you know, listen, I mean, if you saw the Chernobyl series, it did not end well. So uh, we're in the first two episodes now. Let's see how this thing uh, uh, unfolds. Are you calling for a change at the top of the Republican ticket? Uh, well, I'm calling for it to be considered, yes. I think you have to uh, consider a change at the top of the ticket. Where do I begin with this? Okay. Um, that's delusional. It's delusional. He said a couple more weeks of how Trump's acting, and there's going to be a groundswell in the party against him. Dude, the base loves him. He has like a 90% approval rating with his base. He has the highest approval rating with his base than any president ever. Now, don't get me wrong. That still only translates to about 43% was the most recent poll. 43% of the entire country supports him. But the idea that like, there's going to be a revolt from within the Republican Party. No, they love this guy. He's ideal to them. And it's so funny. What a random thing to say. Like, oh, another couple weeks of this. Another couple weeks of this. You act like he was just elected. And people are just learning about how Trump is. They know how Trump is. And his base is not abandoning him. They love him. So what, like, a ridiculous argument to make. Um, and then he said, well, how weak, how tepid this group I'm calling for this, maybe we should kind of a little bit, but not really re replace him at the top of the ticket. Should be considered something. <laughs> These guys are so weak. That's so weak. Because 
I'm sure you caught it there because he said it probably more than anything else he said there. He kept stressing, his policies are great. Policies are great. His policies are great. That tells you everything about all these clowns. They're like, hey, man, listen, you want to do a tax bill that totally screws over working people and raises taxes on people who make $70,000 a year or less over a 10-year period? You want to gut the estate tax? You want to cut the corporate tax rate? You want to cut the top marginal tax rate? You want to deregulate Wall Street? You want to uh, wage more war and try to squeeze out the Venezuelan government and the Iranian government? You want to make terrible decision after terrible decision until the cows come home? I love all of that, but you're a little mean on Twitter. You talk about yourself a little too much when you went to the places where the shootings happened. By the way, now he's acting like, oh, this president has gone too far in many instances. He should be uniting the country. Just so you know, Anthony Scaramucci took the job that he only had for like seven and a half seconds um, in the Trump administration, well after Donald Trump had made the comments when he launched his campaign, oh, Mexico's not sending their finest, their rapists, their criminals. I assume some are good people. Clearly implying most are rapists and criminals, kind of like the definition of bigotry. And then also the Muslim ban comment, Donald J. Trump is to- calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming to this country. You took the job when he said that stuff. So now to act like, oh, good sir, I believe you cast line. It's just so self-serving. And here's the reality, guys. Here's the reality. Scaramucci ran out of angles. He ran out of angles. So what's he going to do? Well, he hit the jackpot because he finally figured it out. He finally cracked the code. Dude, all you have to do to get corporate media to love you is to say, I agree with everything Trump is doing ever, but, oh, my God, the mean tweets, and he's unpresidential, and he's not acting right from a human level. Oh, my God. That's all you had to say, and the media all of a sudden is like, Oh, Scaramucci, a very serious person. He's a very serious person. Their ideal people are like, Hey, man, I agree with Trump on everything, but I don't know. I don't like the way he's acting and his temperament, and he's being unpresidential, and that Twitter feed, and the selfishness, and the narcissism. Because that's those the surface-level criticisms of Trump are the ones that they bask in all day, every day. That's what it is. So, And you see it. Now he's like you know, a media darling. He did an interview with all of them, and they're like, Trump said mean things to you. What do you say back? And he's like, well, I say I agree with him on everything, but I'm still, I don't like him too much at this moment. Oh, very edgy. We like that, sir. Would you please take a six-figure salary job from us? That's what's coming next, I guarantee you. It, you know, this was his angle to get his name back in the media to pretend like he's relevant, to hopefully open up some doors moving forward. Some sort of an analyst, some sort of a contributor. Um, so that's what's going on here. And if you, if you think that this is some sort of like sincere, principled, like, oh, he had an enlightenment moment. Man, I got a bridge to sell you in Florida, dog. Because, <laughs> hell no, that's not what's happening here. And the media is more than happy to play along with a character like Scaramucci. They love guys like this. You know, a character 
who just like tepidly criticizes Trump while agreeing with him on everything, um, who will give them some sound bites every now and then to, to pump out some articles that are just like silly and totally unnecessary. He is the exact kind of person that they want to like. And now they're, they finally come to that point and you're watching it unfold right in front of your face. Now let's uh, make fun of the whole anti-PC brigade. So I want to give some credit to uh, Jordan Yule. Sorry, Jordan, I really don't know how to pronounce your last name, and I've never heard you say it. Um, But he tweeted this. It's a clip. From Tucker Carlson's show, we have comedian Adam Carolla and Tucker Carlson, and they took the whole anti-political correctness thing to a whole new cringy level here. Let's watch. I would say drop them off in a business and let them be uh, what they used to call me on the construction site, start off as a glorified goomper which is low man on the totem pole. Oh, can we say low man anymore? No. Low, what, well, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna use a pejorative here and uh, assign I don't know the answer, but I know the pronoun is they. Okay, low they, uh-huh. not on the totem pole, because that's cultural appropriation. Point. Low they on the barber pole? No. Low they on the flagpole? No, definitely not on the flagpole, on the utility pole. Low they on the telephone pole. Yeah. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> oh, man. What's amazing to me is that these people apparently don't understand that they're just as insufferable as the people that they're making fun of. Because that's the whole, like the whole anti-social justice warrior, anti-political correctness thing started because, you know, the argument against those people, the social justice warriors, was, hey man, you guys are like really insular and you have no self-awareness and you take yourself uh, too seriously and you think you know everything and you aren't funny and then they're like they have mirrored exactly that <laughs> because dog they have like two jokes that they recycle over and over you know I, I don't even I'm sure you guys know the variations of it but one of them is basically and so then I said to him there's not 800 genders <laughs> now I don't like I've actually heard that uh, Adam Carolla is a really nice guy in person from somebody who I trust and respect. So I'm not, I just want to be clear, I'm not like trying to do a personal attack here on Adam Carolla. I'm just saying that like, dude, you're now so deep in your own bubble that you don't realize you're like preaching to the choir and this is not some shit. Like this appeals to a bunch of 83-year-olds in in retirement homes. And um, it, it seems like 
he's totally unaware of it. And the other joke that these guys do is, you know, some variation of like, well, if there's trans people, why can't I identify as a walrus? It really does shock me that a lot of these people don't realize that, like, hey, man, you guys are so cringeworthy, just as cr- And don't get me wrong, I'm, like, on the record, and some people don't like me for this, but, hey, it's fine. It is what it is. They're like, yeah, I get it. I get how the whole, some, some pink-haired kid on a college campus trying to, you know, shut down a speaker from giving a speech because they don't like that person's politics. I get it, man. That's pretty authoritarian. That's pretty dumb. You know, even if you despise what the person's going to say, so don't go. Don't go. Or, you know, write a blog about how their ideas are stupid. I probably agree with you on the substance of it, but it's just whatever. You don't try to, don't try to uh, shut people down, ban them because you don't like them. I'm, I'm, I agree with them on that. I'm hardcore free speech absolutist. Um, but how did they not see that this is just so, like, you're so dumb, and this is so not funny. <laughs> and I'm not, I, I'm not saying that as like a, I'm offended kind of way. I'm saying it as like, holy shit. I mean, it's just not funny. <laughs> it's not even close to funny. Are we allowed to say no man on the totem pole anymore? Hmm? Have, have the, it's, it's they. You have to use they as the pronoun. Lo they on the oh totem pole is offensive too. Barber pole maybe. Randy on Twitter was like, it looks like they kind of staged this, like they had the conversation beforehand. Like I'm gonna make a joke. You're gonna love this one, bro. You're gonna love this one. So I'm gonna say, low man on the totem pole, and we're gonna go. Oh, am I offending anybody? Am I offending anybody? <laughs> That's all these guys. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a, a large chunk of conservative humor that's, like, the whole point is just to be, like, fake edgy. Like, oh, have I offended you? That was my goal, to offend you. Please get mad at me, and I'll make the same 14 jokes over and over. Or trans walrus. Can I identify as a walrus? Can I identify as a walrus? But whatever, go on, do you, Doug, do you. I mean, there's a market for it. By all means, go right ahead. But, uh, you know, I've, I've noticed this for a long time now. The whole argument of like, well, see, the social justice warriors are just so shrill and so insular, and that's what makes them insufferable. It's like, well, this clip is the definition of shrill and insufferable as well. Okay. All right, we're going to play some Richard Wolf for you because he did a great job breaking down student loan debt forgiveness. So this next video is from the Democracy at Work YouTube channel. Um, it's the great economist Richard Wolf, 
he does a fantastic job here going after the opponents of student loan debt forgiveness. So my first comment as an economist answers the question, is this a feasible way of going about the problem? There the answer is an unqualified yes, of course. Is this doable? Yes. Would it solve the problem? Absolutely. Let's take a look. One of the questions raised about it is, oh my goodness, this is going to impact the economy because money that is now in the hands of stockbrokers and bankers and all of the people who speculate on Wall Street, they won't have this money. Yes, that's true. They won't. But on the other hand, 50 to 100 million Americans who have no longer a student debt problem will be able to use the money they used to pay in their regular monthly payments on student debt to buy goods and services. So the loss to one part of the economy is offset by the gain to another part. This is simple economics and ought not to be forgotten. Here's another way of saying the same thing. You're taking away money from the top so it doesn't trickle down. But you're giving an economic boost to the average American who has a student debt. And that's money going to be spent by that person no longer on paying that debt, but on buying goods and services. That's money you might call trickling up. And the trickle up offsets the trickle down. So if you want to argue about the student debt, let's be honest. It is a program not surprisingly coming from a socialist like Bernie Sanders, that's good for the average American, the vast majority, who either have student debt or face the burden of student debt if they want to help their kids get a college education. It helps them at the price of the 1% or the 5% at the top. One side benefits, the other side loses some. That just corrects what's been going on the last 40 years where the reverse has gone on. Or, to take a more recent example, the tax cut back in December of 2017 that enormously boosted the top, arguing that it would trickle down, which it didn't, rather than help the bottom, which is why Bernie and the others supporting his bill say, we bailed out, the people did, Wall Street. Back in 2008, 9, and 10, it's time for Wall Street to bail out the American student. So is it economically feasible? Sure it is. That was awesome. Um, this actually reminded me of when Bernie went on Joe Rogan's podcast, and Bernie spoke about uh, free college, and Joe Rogan said, well, how are you going to pay for it? And his reaction was, Wall Street transaction tax. Like, I love how when he's given a forum to actually seriously discuss these issues, he could give you very solid, correct answers. But the whole point of mainstream media when they bring up something like, how are you going to pay for it? It's not because they're interested in the answer. It's because they're interested in trying to undercut and nip in the bud the idea that it should be taken seriously up front. Like, that's the point of that. Because they never say, how are you going to pay for it when it comes to endless war and our expanding military budget? They never say, how are you going to pay for it when it comes to a bailout of Wall Street? It was just, they just did it. 
and nobody batted an eyelash. But in the case of anything for actual people, they're like, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? But when that question is asked in earnest and you get the answer, people go, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so I, I love that. And, um, yeah, the idea of canceling student loan debt, I mean, yes, a generation is kind of being held back from fully participating, participating in the economy because they have so much student loan debt, and you can't even file for bankruptcy on that debt. So I think that that's really, it's a really important step to make, and it would definitely drastically help the economy because you free up capital, and these people will spend this money on things that they need. Um, so it's absolutely something we should do. And if you really stop and think about it, like the idea of everybody takes for granted that we have public, elementary school, middle school, high school. Everybody takes that for granted. K to 12, free. Free at the point of service, paid for via taxes. Everybody takes that for granted because it's just how it is. So why is it an insane idea to think, why not just do K to 16 or preschool to 16? That's just the logical next step. You know, I mean, our public uh, school system is wonderful. It's great to have public schools. It really, it, in many ways, it, it serves as an equalizer and really does give people economic opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise. So any argument that somebody would make against free college, just for the record here, is an argument that would also apply against free high school. But you'll notice people never make that next step because they realize how absurd and regressive that is. So they're like, they just use the arguments they use against free college, and they don't say, well, this would also apply to free high school. Are you also against free high school? So, um, yeah, uh, obviously I love the idea of free college. I love the idea of canceling student loan debt. And what Richard Wolf is doing here, and it's incredibly important that he does this, is say this isn't just like a pie-in-the-sky lefty idea. This is also like a very serious idea, um, and from an economics perspective, it has – many unintended consequences that are benefits for the rest of the economy. And to view it simply as, because there's this default sense you get when you listen to a lot of politicians and you watch mainstream media. And the sense is, well, we don't do it like that right now, so it's crazy to even consider that we change it. And it's like, wow, what a weird approach to analyzing the world. Like, things are the way they are, therefore they must make sense. No. <laughs> what a giant fallacy that is. That's like, you know, when it comes to insulin, costs $6 to make it, but we sell it for 360 or about that in the U.S. That's not like written in the laws of nature that it has to be like that. That's like a bunch of corrupt backroom deals that handcuffed the ability to negotiate that made it like that, where pharmaceutical companies just tell you what you have to pay and you have no choice. The idea that that's not changeable because that's how it is now, silly. In the same way that people saying, we can't do anything to address the student loan debt crisis because that's just how it is. That's a non-point. You're not making an argument. So uh, some great stuff here from Richard Wolf. He has a lot of great stuff. And I'm happy that somebody's out there making the economic arguments as well. You know, there's uh, many people make the moral argument, the ethical argument. Um, but it, it's good that you have serious economists also saying, hey, we could talk about it from this perspective too, and it's still a good idea. Okay. All right, let me take my final break real quick. Should be a quick one. I just need to 
go tinkle. <laughs> and then when we come back, I got Kamala Harris, and I have um, a little bit more detail on how they're screwing Tulsi. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all of that and more.
Son of a bitch. All right, we're back, everybody. Let's wrap up this show nicely. And put a neat little bow on it. Okay. So Kamala Harris replied, responded to the shooting. We're going to dive into that. So at least six Philadelphia police officers were shot um, in a huge story that broke yesterday. Now, thankfully, um, they're, they're just wounded, and I don't think any of them died. Um, so Kamala Harris went on CNN, like, in the aftermath as, as soon as this was happening, or I think as soon as it was over. Um, or actually, you know what? They hadn't caught – there were two shooters. They had gotten one. They hadn't gotten the other one yet, but the six officers had already been shot, and they were in the hospital, but not life-threatening, and they're going to be fine. Um, but Kamala Harris, in the midst of all this, was on CNN. She gave her take as to how we can, you know, fix problems like this. Let's watch. And then there's a really important fact here, which kind of, um, which, which is left out, which really changes the dynamic of what the solution would be. Let's watch, and then I'll explain. Somebody's been joining us here in this situation. Very disturbing development, indeed. Your former Attorney General of California. What's your reaction to these initial reports? And I stress the word initial reports. Well, it's when will it stop, right? I mean, um, part of, of my focus on what we need to do around gun, smart gun safety laws is recognize that um, we have to have more enforcement around gun dealers. Uh, well, 90% of the guns that are associated with crime are sold by just 5% of the gun dealers in the United States. And so among the many plans that I have, both in the form of executive action and also in the form of legislation, one of them is to put more resources into the ATF to take the licenses of gun dealers um, who violate the law. And that includes a number of things, including when they are responsible for doing background checks, not doing them. So, but does your plan go from your perspective foreign? Well, there are a variety of things. First of all, let's be clear. Um, I, have, I have hugged too many mothers of homicide victims over the years. I have looked at more autopsy photographs than I care to tell you of people whose lives have been ended because of gun violence. We need Congress to act. We do not lack for good ideas. We do not lack for tragedies. The failure of Congress, however, the United States Congress, to act on passing smart gun safety laws is, is, is the issue. So uh, when elected, I'll give the United States Congress 100 days to pull their act together on this and put a bill on my desk for signature. And if they do not, I am prepared to take executive action to, one, put in place a comprehensive background check requirement, two, put the resources in the city ATF to take the licenses from gun dealers who violate the law, and three, to ban the importation of assault Okay, so listen, all that stuff is fine and dandy. I don't necessarily disagree with her on those policies. Um, I'm not sure her entire uh, gun reform package, I'd have to look through it. Maybe I have minor disagreements, but I largely agree with her on that stuff. But here's the thing. This shooting, we know, and we knew at the time when she was doing this segment as well, which is an important fact, it was a drug bust gone wrong. So even though I don't disagree with the policy she's laying out there, this is a, a square peg round hole situation. Because the real solution is, hey, decriminalize drugs, legalize marijuana, 
and that would make it so you wouldn't have a drug bust gone wrong because there wouldn't be a drug bust because it would be out of the black market. So no, no longer would there be gangsters and the mafia dealing with this stuff. It would be above ground, be in the sunlight. It wouldn't be dangerous anymore. And, of course, Kamala Harris is not for decriminalizing drugs. So that's not like you're not really addressing the core of this particular instance. Now, again, I don't necessarily disagree with her on the gun reform proposals there, but, like, it's time to start putting pressure on these politicians to evolve on this issue because that actually is the solution. We've had a drug war going for decades now. And we have literally hundreds of thousands of people dead because it is an actual war, a hot war. Uh, We also have had a massive increase in organized crime and violent crime. Because when you ban these substances, you push them underground, gangsters and and the mafia deals with them. And, um, you know, the cartels get incredibly powerful. And you give them a monopoly. So they're the only game in town when it comes to substances. And so when there's a dispute, they settle it in the street with guns. Whereas if it's legal, taxed, and regulated, and there's a dispute, you settle it in court. See, we know, we learned the lesson of prohibition. We know how this works. We know that when alcohol was illegal, there was a, a giant increase in crime because the alcohol was illegal. So you have gangs running the show, running the businesses. When we, when we legalized alcohol, and ended prohibition, all of a sudden the crime went down because now it's legitimate businesses dealing with the alcohol and it's not gangsters. Same thing here. Police officers get shot doing a drug raid. Well, there's an easy solution here. Make drug raids no longer a thing. (laughs) And then nobody's going to get shot in this instance. So it's just... And I'm telling you, this is the answer, 100%. And honestly, we still need to move... Like, Joe Rogan asked Bernie a great question in, uh, in the podcast, and he said, hey, would you go further and decriminalize more drugs? And, he was, and Bernie said no. Bernie is dead wrong. To be fair to Bernie, he wants to legalize marijuana for recreational use. He's right on that. But at the very least, you need to also say we need to decriminalize all drugs because it should be looked at as more of a, a health issue than a criminal issue. As long as you have it criminalized, there's going to be more violence associated with all those different drugs. I don't care how, how terrible the drug is. If it's treated more like a health issue, you don't have problems like we saw here, where a drug bust goes wrong, you have an increase in crime on the black market, you have now cops getting shot at because they're trying to police substances like this. It's just the exact wrong way to go about it. So, you know, Kamala Harris, while I don't disagree with her policy she laid out on gun reform, we need to push these politicians to be better on the issue of decriminalizing drugs because that's the only way to really tick down this violence. And in this instance, to stop these six police officers from getting shot in the first place. All right. Final story of, the day beach. Here we go. So there's a petition that I'm going to leave in the video description box. Um, this is important. I'm going to explain the DNC's new trick, okay, 
uh, let me read you the description in the petition here. We, the voters, ask that you include polls from The Economist, Emerson, and Suffolk for the September and October DNC debates. Since the end of, Ju- of the July debates, only a handful of polls have been released, far fewer than what was previously released. We ask that these polls be included so Secretary Julian Castro and Representative Tulsi Gabbard be included in the debates. They have far exceeded the donor threshold and clearly have grassroots support, which is essential for any election. Include these polls so the candidates can qualify for the debates. It is imperative we have unique voices on a debate stage, and both these candidates have offered unique solutions, and it has clearly resonated with the grassroots base as they have both exceeded 130,000 unique donors. So they did this to Gravel last time. They did some tricky little rules at the last minute or weird interpretations of the rules, and they said, ah, bro, sorry, my bad, bro. I know you hit the requirement, but not going to make it. My bad. And now the trick is, hey, these specific polls, which have Tulsi polling above the threshold, above 2%, we're not going to we're not going to use these ones. Economist, Emerson, Suffolk. Now are they saying, hey, those are unscientific and that's why we're not using them? No. They're just saying those are not DNC approved polls. And would you look at that? It just happens to be the case that in the other polls that are DNC approved, those ones happen to have Tulsi at under the threshold that she needs. So um, we knew they were going to do this. If, it, if it's a close call, they're going to be Weasley and interpret it in the way that gets their preferred candidates on stage. That's what's going to happen. Now, we covered a story earlier. Uh, Tom Steyer, 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 he announced he's run for president pretty late compared to everybody else, right? He announces that. And all of a sudden, boom, overnight, oh, I made it. I made the debate threshold. Wow, what? How? Why? How did that happen? What do you mean? That's insane. Well, uh, he spent the past two years building up a, I'm in favor of impeachment. Sign my petition and give me your information. So on false pretenses, got everybody's information. You know, spam emails everybody. Also, sells anti-Trump bumper stickers that count as the individual donation. So people buying these bumper stickers, they, they might not even realize that they're donating in for his presidential campaign and it's going to count as an individual donation. So he weasels his way into getting the over 130,000 unique donors, which Tulsi has, by the way, in a legit way, where she's running for president and, and, and directly talking to people, not doing weird, conniving, weasley shit. So he weasels his way into getting 130,000 individual donors. And then also, I, don't, I honestly have no idea how he pulled above 2% in any polls. But I will tell you right now, I smell bullshit. I, I, don't, think, I don't think he actually is polling above 2%. I don't think that's the case at all. He just jumped in the race. Very few people know who he is. Um, so point is, I think there's some DNC fuckery going on here where they're trying to say, oh, it just so happens that this candidate that we don't like, that Ted C is not going to make it, even though she kind of made it. If you look at, if you use the standards that they're laying out and you include these polls, which are scientific polls, she makes it. So like, ah, that doesn't count. But this other guy who's a billionaire who weaseled his way into the debates and did a whole bunch of weird tricks in order to get into the debates, he can, get, he can be on stage. Here we go again. Here we go again. So sign that petition. I don't know how much of a difference it's going to make. I hope it makes a big difference. I hope it changes it. I hope it gets her on that stage. But um, Gravel wasn't on that stage, even though he qualified, and they were switched up some stuff at the last minute. We covered that story To be fair, I don't remember all the details of how they did it. I just know that I looked at it and went, no, this is fucked up. This isn't right. 
So uh, it's a shame, and I hope they fix this because there's definitely. Seriously, we're gonna, really going to have this conversation. Who has more support, Tulsi Gabbard or Tom Steyer, Steyer, Steyer? Really? I mean, come on. We all know the answer to that question. They're trying to tell you, uh, you know, who do you believe, us or your lying eyes? That's what they're laying out here. So let's put as much pressure on them as we can. Okay. All right. We are done, though. I love you, baby. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Um, I will talk to you on Monday. Much love, y'all. Peace. Keep your eye on Jimmy Dore's channel to see when the live show clips drop. I had a great time on his live show two nights ago. Anyway, much love, y'all. I'm out.